At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, time to check in on the old Eastern Conference. We have done a ton of prep for this episode. I watched a lot of film of a lot of players that I was really interested in checking in on. Haven't looked 50 and 60 style at the East in a while. So we got some really cool stuff coming up here. We're going to talk about Pascal Siakam and Jaden Ivey and Jalen Brunson. But where I want to start here is the showdown between the two teams that even as of now are the top two teams in the East, the Boston Celtics and the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, Let's start with the Celtics here. Danny, what are their fundamentals? The Boston Celtics are now 32 and 12, 10 and 4 since the last 15, 60. It's a little bit longer in time. I think that's just because of the transition around New Year's. Um, Still first in the league in net rating. And I believe the only team, no, yeah, are they the only team in the NBA? Yes, that is top five in both offense and defense. They're second in offense and fifth in defense. This is using the cleaning the glass version of those two stats and net rating. Then per 538's models, Raptor and Elo both project the Celtics to win 59 games, which would be first in the Eastern Conference and first in the entire NBA. Yeah, and the Boston Celtics also, with that 7.4 net rating per cleaning the glass, they are second in the NBA. I'm sorry, first in the NBA, second is Memphis. 0.6 points uh, behind them. And then you go down to Denver at plus uh, 4.6 well behind them uh, as well. Though Denver up to 30 and 13 right now. They're in a nice stretch defensively. Defense has been a little bit better. They're also at home in an easier part of their schedule. This game was obviously a disappointment when KD went out. It was a further disappointment when Jalen Brown went out. Uh, He's going to miss looking like about two weeks here. Is that right? That was the last I saw, yeah. With a... It's left adductor tightness. Yes, of course. Just just tightness. Nothing to be worried about. He's just going to miss two weeks. Certainly not a not a strain or tear. Just just tightness. Just tightness. Okay. Yeah, so, event, so that led to yeah. a question. And, of, and no, no Al Horford in this game either. Right. Yeah, no Al Horford either. He is currently... Yeah. Oh, no, but then he played Saturday. Okay, so he sat yeah, out. He it was sat just the third. second night of a back-to-back for Boston and a three yeah. and four. Whereas Brooklyn, despite the absence of KD, they had had three days off before this game so there this is one where you know i don't know if horford plus jalen brown equals kd probably not when you consider that the celtics won uh but also the celtics were starting from a better baseline anyway and they they just have more guys which would be a big theme of this game It, it would be and i wondered you know jalen brown and horford being out that changes the front court rotation pretty significantly and what 
Joe Missoula ended up doing is starting Tatum alongside Grant Williams and Robert Williams. Robert Williams has ascended into the starting lineup. Actually, if Jason Tatum argued that they should do that. And so I, I think the argument in favor of that is you put your best front court players on the floor. And even though Brooklyn isn't challenging them in the same way with Kevin Durant unavailable, then you can fill in the gaps with the Luke Cornets of the world. It could have been Blake Griffin, but he got a DNP CD in this one. And I, I think that approach to me made a lot of sense. And Jason Tatum, I mean, he's, I think of him as a natural four, but he can defend threes, especially this group of threes. No, absolutely. And I think the reason I was interested in this game was I just wanted to try to get a feel for what the Nets were going to look like without KD. And they did struggle to score against a good defense, although one missing two of their better defenders as well. And the Nets also only put up 102 against OKC, another home loss today 112 102 to the surging oklahoma city thunder but i i think one my biggest concern if i'm the nets here i mean uh, there's something good that you could take out of it and that's that they defended jason tatum pretty well like there it's not nearly the disaster defending tatum they have some guys who can at least put up a fight there they're playing nick claxton a lot more now than they did so uh, nick claxton can switch they're not just giving up easy pick and roll buckets uh, to Tatum he's got to do a lot more of his work in isolation and I don't think there's anyone other than maybe Simmons who I view as like a lockdown guy on Jason Tatum but Royce O'Neal can at least put up a little bit of a fight there you know they got Joe Harris back right now he's not going to be a total disaster they've got even someone like Watsonabe or TJ Warren Warren wasn't great in this game really the only two guys that you're really worried about are either Kyrie or Curry and even Kyrie will like He's not going to get overpowered, at least, although I did have some issues with his defense in this game. So that was the thing you feel good about. The thing that I feel bad about if I'm Brooklyn is that Kyrie Irving has now really struggled against the team. He struggled after game one in the playoffs last year. And this is Boston does a lot of switching. And in this game, they're even switching Luke Cornett out onto Kyrie late in the clock. And I thought Cornett did a decent job. And Kyrie had some spectacular moments, but he ended up 24 points, 9 of 24, 3 of 11 from 3, 6 assists. And he just has a lot of guys on this team who give him some trouble. They're able to pressure him, force him to drive, which uh, he doesn't want to do as much uh, at this point in his career. And there really just aren't hardly any easy marks for Kyrie to attack. And if he is on one of those guys, then they'll usually have a Rob Williams uh, behind. And so that's that's one of your bigger concerns here for the Nets. Ben Simmons scoring also possibly a concern. Yeah, I mean, not only the scoring part of it, but Ben Simmons played 23 minutes, sorry, 26 minutes, and he took three shots in total, three field goal attempts, zero free throw attempts, did have 13 assists and only two turnovers, but it changes, you know, especially we're talking about good defenses. It, it If you don't have to worry about him finishing that much, you don't have to worry about him shooting at all, it is going to create challenges for the rest of Brooklyn's team. And I, I, this is something I talked about when KD went down is that the Brooklyn Nets generate fewer high value chances than anybody else in the league. And they can survive that when they have KD and Kyrie, because those are the two, two of the best tough shot makers in the entire league. But one of the reasons they this team overall has so many tough shots is that the half court, they're easier to defend because they have this player that you don't have to guard as aggressively. And Simmons, to me, one of the other frustrations is that he hasn't quite given them as much juice and transition as I'd hoped. 
Yeah, I thought he was better early on in this one. He had 10 assists at halftime. I thought some of those were in transition, but you can only be so good in transition if you're not willing to actually attack the basket and force right. the defense to load to you. Right. And and I mean, there are numerous players that we can point to over the years. Giannis is probably the most obvious who can create advantages in the half court, even if they are in transition, even if you don't respect their jump shot. Like there are ways you could do that through athleticism and force of will. And Ben Simmons has plenty of athleticism. So it's the force of will that is frustrating to me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So the 13 assists, very few of them were from actually penetrating and drawing the defense. A lot of Rondo assists. They were trying to do more of the handoff game stuff with him as well. And I thought their offensive approach had some good points to it. They had some counters for Boston trying to keep Robert Williams out of the action, whether it was either using whoever he was guarding to screen off the ball once a pick and roll had already been set to kind of force him to guard someone who is along the baseline. And then you you set a screen with the guy that he's guarding, or you can if he's guarding the corner shooter, a lot of times that'd be Royce O'Neal to have him shake up out of the corner to the wing and at least force Rob to guard more up on the wing rather than being able to crash in from the corner and block everybody's shot. Um, but overall, Simmons, you know, it was some nice passes to three-point shooters. Every once in a while, they're trying to run stuff through him at the elbows. Uh, but again, he was 0 for 3 from the field. And to his credit, he did have one play where he passed off way behind TJ Warren when he probably should have taken the layup. And he, I think, realized that he had done that and came back down the next time. And then one of his few aggressive takes where he goes at Cornette, but wasn't able to finish the layup in that circumstance. Uh, I thought his defense was very solid. I mean, it's worth noting that he was plus 10 in his 26 minutes. Then Simmons did not play tonight. Uh, against the thunder uh, due to a sore back he'd come in uh, questionable for that oh, yeah one thing that i this game stuck out but it's also just something i want to mention make sure we mentioned about the nets so in this game nick claxton four blocks he now has eight consecutive games with three or more credited blocks wow. which is pretty incredible and he's you know making a difference defensively he talked about you know defensive player of the year consideration earlier claxton had talked about that we haven't firmly mentioned him but that's incredibly impressive and i just wanted to mention it yeah and i talk a little bit more uh, about his game you know, a lot of people have done some good work on claxton and the Nets switching defense like uh, thinking basketball and half court hoops had a, a good piece on on youtube of how they're switching defense uh, has been working I, as i watched claxton in this game i thought he was relatively unaggressive switching out onto guys which i think is actually a good thing like he was only switching when it became clear that the guy had gotten hit by the screen there was contact and he needed to step up and so that would lead to a few jumpers off the dribble being available even sometimes for jason tatum but they held tatum to 7 22 in this game uh, but you know those aren't like great shots the guy has to rush it a little bit like he's leaving a little bit more space you know, the Houston Rockets when that back when they did their switching they were much more aggressive when they would switch out they would try to make you go backwards at the point of the switch that's not what Claxton is doing and that, I think that's good because you want him to avoid switching as much as you can because he's their best help defender he had uh, you mentioned the four blocks like he had one where he double teamed a guy in the corner the ball got passed to a guy under the basket and he ran all the way from the corner and blocked the guy's layup after after trapping and one pass away. It was an incredible job covering ground. So, But I, I like the fact that they're a little more conservative giving up that switch 
and not doing it until you absolutely have to, particularly with Claxton. The other guys who are on the perimeter, they'll do it a little bit more. And then Claxton still shows some ability to attack off the bounce. It'll go left every time, but he's got a little bit of like a floater half hook along the lane line that he can make. So he's making some touch touch shots uh, as well, in addition to just uh, being a dunker around the rim. I'm very curious to see at some point whether teams will go to the hack of Claxton or the hack of Simmons. It seems almost like they just don't want to play that card in the regular season. Maybe maybe Philly will do it if, if everyone is actually ever healthy for those games. I think there's another Brooklyn-Philly game coming up where not everyone is, none of the main players can be, or not all of the main players can be healthy. A um, few other smaller notes uh, for this one. Neither Marcus Smart nor Derek White are incredible offensive threats, although I do think that Marcus Smart's passing has been key to Jason Tatum taking this next step. But what I like about it is there's nobody who plays for Boston that you can hide someone on who's so powerless that you know, a Seth Curry is going to be able to just avoid ever being in the action. And one of the ways that uh, they attack those guys isn't with the kind of Derek, you're have the smaller guy screen for for Jason Tatum because Jason Tatum is not like he's very deliberate in uh, attacking those plays I think you can avoid the switch or or you can switch back or you can still kind of get your help in a position what I like better in those plays is when they have either Derek White or Marcus Smart get screened for by Jason Tatum because then those guys can get downhill and they're threatening enough that they can get in the lane and make a play White has some athleticism to finish Smart is not a great finisher but he can make passes like he he, or he's got like a short range floater that he can go to and he usually what'll happen when tatum sets the screen is they want to stick to jason tatum and usually whoever's guarding those guys isn't good at getting over screens so they get slammed by the screen or tatum can slip out of it and get open and then you've got a guy just coming downhill hard in a four on three you've got rob williams there to dunk a potential alley-oop so i find that their most effective way and just the fact that white and smart have enough skill to make those plays work is an important facet to their offense to me it also changes the way that you use the help defenders because as you mentioned that you you draw them in the action but use them as a as the hand as the handler rather than the screen right i think it's a really a really good idea um one question i had for you i I was thinking about this while watched part of the okc a little bit of the okc game on sunday is I don't believe cleaning the glass has Sunday's result in the Brooklyn Nets have a 109.5 offensive rating when Kyrie's on the floor without Kevin Durant. This includes a lot of early season sample when the Nets did not have a full full complement of capable players. How concerned are you by that, them being well, well below average so far in the Kyrie on KD off minutes? Yeah, I'm definitely concerned by it. Uh, I mean, and, and concerned that they put up 98 and 102 in these two games without KD. And I think you know someone like TJ Warren maybe can come in and pick up the slack, but I don't think he's going to be able to be consistent on a night-to-night basis. And he's not going to be in the starting lineup. Like they played him 28 minutes in this Boston game, and he had, he had 20 points. He looked good, but they don't really. I mean, their starting lineup of with Simmons and Claxton together, Royce O'Neal, Joe Harris, and Irving. 
Irving is really the only guy that is uh, going to be able to score and break down the defense. And and he's also his style of play. He's just much better as a play finisher. Uh, he is just not a, a great vision guy. Like he'll have times when he gets a, a lot of assists, but he's not wowing you with his passing. And particularly when he goes into his dribbling exhibitions, like he will kind of get his head down a little bit and not find guys. And also Kyrie doesn't get that many blow buys where you're going to suck in the defense. And there are times when I, I thought he missed open shooters in this game so it's really been rare that Kyrie as the best player on the floor has been able to drive great offense for his teams maybe the closest you could get would be those Boston teams in 18 and 19 but even those teams didn't have like unstoppable offenses and they had a lot of interesting talent around him in a way that I don't think this Brooklyn team without KD does and but, quickly, yeah. sorry, quickly, for those interested, the Nets offense is far, far worse. It's terrible when both Irving and Durant are off the floor, which is a situation they're dealing with more often right now because Durant is unavailable. So it'd be lovely if Ben Simmons could step up more. That chip has kind of sailed for me until proven up otherwise as an offensive player. And now I think there were some signs in this game watching the Nets that made me feel good about their ultimate destiny if they can get KD back. Joe Harris uh, was four of seven from three. He looks like he's starting to round into form. It had uh, the other thing that separated him from just your pure Bertans type of shooters is that he's had like a decent cutting and driving game and he was able to do that three of four on two pointers it got a nice baseline drive and a couple of cuts a couple of offensive rebounds so he would just he's able to mix it up a little bit more than your typical just pure shooter guy and you know i thought warren defensively he got blown by a couple of times i think we still have to see whether he can get back to where he was with the pacers as a defender Uh, and he still looks a little bit heavier doesn't have quite the same explosion but he is capable uh, of putting the ball on the floor he beat tatum one-on-one at one point and can work a little bit on the second side pick and roll you don't want him on the first side but maybe attacking on the second side he could do that and so he put up 20 on 9 of 18 he's not going to get to the foul line much but uh, certainly he's playing well enough that you would think that teams that had more money to offer than the nets probably should have offered it although maybe he would have gone to the nets anyway for boston luke Cornette, 11 points five of five from the field including a sick over the head reverse dunk on an alley-oop from marcus smart on one of those marcus smart getting downhill plays Peyton Pritchard, another guy who, when everyone is there, is not even in the rotation. 15 minutes, he was out there for, I think, the entirety of their 16-2 game-deciding run. Kyrie was on the floor for the Nets during that period, and the lineup for the Celtics is... Brogdon, Pritchard, Derek White, so a three-guard alignment, Grant Williams, and Luke Cornett. And that's the group that blew the game open, put them up double digits, and the Nets never got closer than six in the end. Uh, And Pritchard, he looked quick. like He put guys in the mix a couple times, plus 13, had a couple of nice driving layups uh, once Claxton got pulled out to the perimeter during that run. I mentioned that they got back within six, and then Kyrie Irving decided to do his inspire the team by defending really hard bit and that usually doesn't go too well his effort will be inconsistent in that first he picks up a foul on marcus smart pressuring up full court and then on the same possession five on the shot clock smart drives to his right goes back between his like steps back for a three the exact shot you want him taking and Kyrie gives him a three shot foul 
Boston goes up uh, by nine and the Nets uh, never threatened it again. It reminded me of when Kyrie tried to go, decide he was going to guard Giannis against the Bucks in one of some of his last games in Boston. It just, uh, you appreciate the effort, but it also, it, it never seems to go particularly well when, when he does that. And you know, Malcolm Brogdon had another great game as well with his uh, hard driving moves. He's a nice fit attacking the switching Nets defense because if he does have someone switch onto him, he just continues his hard attack and gets right by him. It's just really hard to, if you're switching and the guy is already going a million miles an hour to keep him in front. So uh, he looked good again, giving the Boston that offensive pace. And uh, Grant Williams played 43 minutes in this game. And I really hope he gets paid because he is going to deserve it. Had three blocks, including a block of a Kyrie isolation three-pointer again. So we have it, Brooklyn Nets, their stats, 27 and 15 on the year, 9 and 3 since the last 15 and 60. They are 6th in net rating, plus 3.9 points per under possessions, 6th on offense, ninth on defense, one of the, I believe it's 6 teams that are top 10 in both offense and defense. And they are currently 2nd in the East, both uh, Raptor and Elo have them finishing 2nd in the East with 50 wins and 52 respectively, and they're going to make the playoffs and we're going to bounce around. This isn't an alphabetical or a record order. And let's go to the let's go to the Washington Wizards from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, man. It is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015, and I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz. Find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house. Get that 100-night trial. They're 10 to 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us.
Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout please remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us do you want to do their stats i do the Wiz currently sit at 18 and 25 seven and six uh, since we last checked in on them they have a negative 1.1 net rating that is 21st in the nba 21st on offense and 18th on defense they project for the 12 seed and 37 wins via both projection systems and holding steady with 18 percent chance of the playoffs per raptor 24 percent per elo so despite projecting for the 12 seed that 37 wins will certainly have them in competition for the play-in depending on what happens around them and we had talked a couple of weeks ago about how we wanted to do a breakdown on Rui Hachimura. He was having this great stretch as of a couple of weeks ago, and it's probably actually good that we didn't zoom in on him right at that time. I like to try to catch guys. You know, obviously there's more interesting guys who are going crazy at a certain time, but it's probably also better analysis to kind of wait. And I mean, you know, obviously if they go on like a 15 game hot streak, then okay, right? But we're talking about uh, five games here. What was he doing in that five game stretch? It was impressive. Hachimura averaged 21 points, four and a half rebounds on 60% from the field, including 36% uh, on about four and a half threes per game. And that was all coming off the bench. Like he's averaging 21.4 a game, not starting. And him not starting is somewhat notable. And the other reason why waiting on Hachimura was such a good idea is because remember, he missed a segment of the season already. So even waiting those, like basically having that extra time, he still only played 650 minutes this season. So we're, we're still on a pretty small sample. This isn't like a full season eval or anything like that. Um, and since that stretch, Hachimura averaging nine and three in ru- pretty similar playing time. Um, so that you know, it's it, it's a little bit less fun when you're off that when you're off that big big push. But there are some positives with Hachimura. Um, I, I'm encouraged that this is the most efficient year he's had as a two point converter, 54 percent overall. He'd love for that to be a little bit higher because he takes more twos than threes. Um, love for him to get to the line a little bit, but still doing that, getting kind of getting more efficient at the things that he does and converting 77% of his free throws, which is both his season percentage and roughly his career one. 
Um, but as I was going through kind of the different splits and I watched film on him too, what's concerning about that 54% on twos is that it's not built entirely on efficient shooting at the basket or like getting to the basket a ton. Hachimura, 22% of his shots are there, making them at a good rate. But instead, it's been really strong efficiency from long from 10 feet and out. And 53% from 10 to 16 feet, 43 from 16 beyond is very good. But when you're kind of the efficiency that you have is built on that, I worry about how sustainable it is unless you're Kevin Durant or DeMar DeRozan or a few other guys. So it makes it, it, it always makes me a little bit dicey, even though he's converting 80% of his shots around the basket, because it's just like, well, what is this going to be? And actually, I think in some ways, the film bears that up too. And, yeah, so what did you see uh, when you looked at him uh, on film? I mean, we can kind of talk yep. a little bit more about about what his role is, but uh, what kind of stuff did you watch uh, for him film-wise? It was fascinating. So I when it kind of started it, I was putzing around on Synergy, and I noticed that Hachimura is actually has a higher points per possession on just this is just narrowing it to jump shots off the dribble than catch and shoot jump shots, which is not exactly common. And when you consider that basically all of Rui Hachimura's threes are assisted and a significant portion. And on, of course, it's off the dribble jumper. So basically, and depending on how synergy draws the lines, those are not really that those are often unassisted plays. You would think that the assisted ones would be easier. They usually are. And when I watched the film, that kind of made sense because what I, I watched the catch and shoots first and it's and his jumper is definitely better than it was early in his career. This is Hachimura's fourth season, but it's also his age 24 year. And so his three point motion, it's a little bit robotic. It's a, it's slower than you'd like, but it is, you know, went in a lot better last year. It's still, you know, like it, it's a work in progress, but there is progress. And so I'm like, okay, watching that is like, you're like, oh, you're going to feel. Rui Hachimura is significantly more fluid shooting those pull-up shots. And I think part of it is just the the reps and the experience that he has doing them. You know, like going back to Gonzaga, I'm sure his uh, experience at the youth levels before that, like pull-up twos are typically a larger part of a, a highly regarded player's diet. Like that's just the way these things often work. And he has that fluidity. But the problem is those shots look fluid, but they're almost all pretty contested. And so Hashimura is making them at a at a good rate this year. But the question that I I just I hadn't I can't I can't shake. And it's been something that's bothered me with Hashimura in years where he's been less effective than he has this year is just what do you do with this? Because I don't think of him like, for example, he's he has pretty good, you know, like one point three points per one point oh three. Sorry. Points per possession on post ups. That's pretty good. He's you know, his isolation doesn't do a ton of them, but that's been relatively effective. And when you add in, like, when you add in passes on post-ups, it builds up the possession numbers. It's okay. But I I, I don't know how to deploy him within a successful offense, especially as a starter. As a bench player, yeah, you can make some stuff work. And watching the film on it, I actually, in some ways, became less confident in him as a starter. Yeah, elaborate on that in a second. But I, I think when you say, how do you deploy him? Well, I think he's in pretty much his optimal role at this point, scoring forward off the bench, but not high enough where he's either going to be a an issue on opposing team scouting reports to the extent that like, oh, we really got to have a plan for what this guy does when he catches the ball. And also just going up against worse defenders as well. And so, yeah, you can get to some of these mid-rangers. Uh, he's 
the way that he plays is as a scoring forward, but he's not really a, a good enough passer or like that good as a scorer that it's a five alarm fire. It's almost like, hey, we need some points in the second unit, which this Wizards team has been quite undermanned at various points this year. And just having anyone who can create a shot and have it be reasonable efficiency, he almost benefits in some ways offensively from the fact that he's not good enough to force help because then he can actually get to the shot that he wants and teams aren't like that worried about it, but he can still be effective with it at times. Oh, uh, on, then, on that, on yeah. that front, just quickly. Um, yeah. I, I, I was watching the film also to, I was interested because I went into the cube to box and everything like that. And I'm like, Oh, how's he, how's he doing as a passer? Cause that brought up the pick up the post-up stuff before Rui Hachimura. It was pretty quick to watch the assist film because he has 32 on the season. And so you could go through it pretty quickly. And what I noticed from that was he's a reasonably intuitive passer, meaning he'll make the right decision in the right time, but he's not really doing a ton of value adds. Like he's not finding dudes. But he has a good understanding of when players should be open. And so that means to me, if he got a little extra attention, I think that could turn into a positive, like get a, get a guy for a corner three, especially if it's within the line of sight, like when he's posting up or when he's in his dribble move. I think that can work well. It's just going to be the question of do you actually want to do that? Yeah, and there's not, I think he's been better defensively this year, but still not a playmaker, which you'd need somewhat of at the four, which is uh, what his natural position is. And so the defensive numbers aren't a disaster for him, but he's also not, I would say, a, a guy who's a huge positive. But I think he's defending well enough now that if he did more on offense, you might possibly think of him being a, a starter. So it, I was I was surprised. Yeah. Um, so Hachimura's def- you brought up the playmaking, defensive playmaking. So steal percentage is below one, block percentage is 1.3, and then defensive rebounding is a little bit up below 17% of available defensive rebounds. I was surprised that he's currently a positive in both defensive EPM and defensive Raptor, just because when I, and I watched a little bit of film, but it's just, I didn't see a ton there that was like, oh, this guy's doing a lot more than he did in previous years. There's probably something going on in those. I didn't look too much at the on-off numbers, but I mean, it's good that the models like him when they did before. I don't exactly understand why or how just yet. So we've talked about, uh, he's had an interesting development here, and we've talked about how he's gotten better at some of the things that were his core skill set coming in. If you look at stuff like his catch and shoot, I mean, these spot-up numbers are pretty grisly, either on spot-up jumpers or spot-up attacks. He's a 0.84 points per possession, which is 18th percentile. And anything below one there is pretty terrible. So do you see any indication that he is getting better in those areas? As well, you watch in, ter- the film? in terms of spot ups, like, I mean, it's important to remember that last year uh, and he missed about half the season last year, but Hachimura made 45 percent of his threes. So the overall yeah, numbers low are attempt there. rate, but he did make them. Yeah, he low attempt rate, but he did make them. And so an overall career, 36 percent on threes. He's at 33 so far. But the one thing that was interesting, there were only a couple plays where they did it um, in, in what I watched, but there were a couple where he like kind of came off a screen or more broke to the ball and his footwork seemed pretty good. Like there hadn't been a lot of versatility that I had seen before. It was more Hachimura just standing in the corner or maybe more the equivalent of a pick and pop, just like standing at the top of the key and hitting it kind of like a trail three. You could think of Brooke Lopez doing and those showed more fluidity than I had seen from him in the past. The shot still, you know, it was more like lower body fluidity than upper body. He's still a little bit slow there, but 
Yeah, there's some. And at 24, especially when that's not something that Hachimura came into the league doing, there is a reason to think that he could that he could continue to grow there. So, so I think it's possible, maybe not probable, that age 26, Rui Hachimura is a more is a more consistent three point shooter, but also potentially a more versatile one. And I would argue that's pretty damn close to mandatory for him to be a true starting caliber player, unless. He's a well above average defender because like, it's just you need to check at least a couple of boxes if you're not going to be doing some of the big stuff. So I'm surprised I didn't make this association until just now. But isn't Johnny Davis kind of the Rui Hachimura of shooting guards? The idea that the like 85th percentile outcome just isn't that valuable player. Is that the concept? Uh, well, in the sense that just the fit, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Like he, he's a guy who's a scorer, but it doesn't profile as an elite scorer. And then kind of doesn't do the things you need to be a support player at that position. Now, Johnny Davis to me is even a worse pick than Rui because Rui at least has the physical tools. And so I think there's a thought that you can kind of, that you could teach him to be a better defender and defensive playmaker and, and his athleticism could be impressive, but it's still like Davis, another one of these guys, he doesn't shoot the three well. You know, I talked about how uh, watching him shoot around in the G League showcase, like his jumper did not look very good. And now Davis doesn't even necessarily have that same level of isolation scoring ability that Rui has or the size, but they're just kind of have the same flaws at their power forward and shooting guard position, respectively. Yeah, I think that's fair. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all of my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns you can customize. Things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Where would you like to... Well, it's your choice. Where would you like to go? All right, what will the people be most interested in? Let's get to Toronto here. And where are they uh, after a brief homestand that saw them play Charlotte in a set and then Atlanta? The Raptors are 
They are six and eight since the last 15 and 60. And as you mentioned, they've played, I believe it's six straight home games now. Six straight and nine of their last 10 have been in Toronto. Positive net rating, plus 0.3 is good for 17th in the league, 15th in offense, 14th in defense. Those, I, in some ways, those numbers being close together, but also not being great is is a little bit interesting. Um, both Raptor and Elo project them to finish as the 11th seed in the East, which would be just a huge disappointment. 38 wins for Raptor, 36 for Elo, and Raptor gives them a 22% chance of making the playoffs. Elo, just 17%. Yeah, they do have a positive net rating, but they are dining out, I think, on a few of the huge blowout wins uh, that they've had. And I thought their loss to the Hawks over the weekend was telling. They did beat the Hornets. Uh, we talked about their game, their first of those two games against the Hornets. I think that was on Wednesday. And then they beat them again. You know, same thing, kind of up by five or ten a lot of the game. And it was got semi-close late, but not really. But then they got housed by the Hawks and we did the previous Raptors Hawks game for the NBA strategy stream in which Toronto just absolutely destroyed the Hawks and that was sort of the thought that the Hawks might be in trouble and now actually the Hawks have a better record uh, than the Raptors we'll talk about them uh, of course as well but what I wanted to hit on with Pascal Siakam you alerted me to this and I wasn't aware that these numbers were so stark until we were talking about awards but you noted it it was a big part of your argument for why you had Pascal Siakam second team NBA and so I, I wanted to dig into it a little bit more but just so we have those raw numbers with Siakam on the floor 117.3 offensive rating for Toronto when he is off the floor 109.1 since he returned from that groin injury those numbers are even more stark and the wraps are 13.8 points 100 better in the half court when Siakam is on the floor and of course the, the wraps half court offense has been their kryptonite the last few years uh the biggest difference there if you just look at it statistically 48.4 percent e-field goal percentage when Siakam is off the floor which is a putrid number that's third percentile still not even that amazing 52.7 when he's on that's actually still only 31st percentile it's the other stuff uh, particularly avoiding turnovers that they've been very good at to get to that 117.3 also worth noting particularly as we talk on off stuff that's been compiled in the last month or two ben taylor alerted me to this that the league average offensive rating is 115 in the last month wow so even though the the average over the course of the year is more like 113 I and mean, that 115 is crazy so getting into it statistically here what are some of the issues of course there's some shooting luck involved without him on the floor the shooting is comically bad 30 percent from three 64 percent at the rim they shoot 68 percent at the rim when he's in the game and then only 36 percent for mid-range they don't necessarily change their shot mix too much other than the shots that i think siakam specifically is taking where they take more floaters a few more mid-rangers when siakam is on the floor when he's off the floor they actually take relatively more shots at the rim although they shoot them worse uh, but the jump shooting uh, just completely falls off a cliff without Siakam on the floor. When he's on the floor, they shoot 35% from three. It's not a good three-point shooting team. But 35% from three, it's only about a point below league average. And uh, they're a little bit above average uh, from the mid-range and floater zones. Another thing I wanted to look at is 
how well are they passing the ball in their offense when Siakam is on versus when he's off? And that's 58% assist, assisted buckets when Siakam is on the floor, 55% when he's off. So, And that's not great because they don't really have like, great isolation players when he's off the floor either. I mean, you think about who would you say, Danny, is the Raptors' second best offensive player this year? I mean, it's it's hard to argue that it's Fred Van Vliet because he's really struggled, especially relative to the expectations that he's had. Um, let's see if I had to pick. I, I mean, I'm not sure who else it would be, though, right? Like he's still he at least runs the offense. He can pass. He's still a guy who has to get guarded from three. Like I'm not going with Ananobi or Trent, am I? No. And Scotty Barnes has been a little bit better recently. Yeah, I guess it is still FEV. Yeah, but that's uh, when you just look at the personnel when he's off the floor. And that's uh, that's tough. Uh and Pascal certainly working as a floor raiser adds some value. Just to the high usage, he's averaging almost 26 points a game. They don't have anyone else who can create a shot with reasonable, although not elite efficiency as he does. Another thing that I think he really helps this team with, and I noted how they're much better on in half-court offense, but he's very solid as a passer in transition as a grab-and-go guy. A lot of his passes were good in transition. And I tried to really catch up on watching his assists in particular because he's increased now. Uh, he's 6.2 assists per 36. He was five last year. And in particular, I like to take a look at, are you getting assists for layups? Like those are the plays that really add the most value to me. Obviously setting up threes is, is great too, but if you can set somebody up for a layup, that's when you've really broken down the defense. Like teams sometimes are going to give up threes. Also, are you able to throw, if you are setting up a three, the non-obvious pass for three-pointers? And I would say that Siakam didn't show that level of elite passing. Uh, this is a, a kind of an interesting rabbit hole that I went down on Synergy, looking at what percentage of his assists came in transition and of his half court assists what percent went for threes as opposed to for twos most passes for twos i don't have the tracking data to totally confirm this but uh most of the assists for two pointers generally are going to be either for layups or sometimes they'll be nice and like when you throw it to a guy at the three-point line and he drives in they'll give you the assist there but that's- well and, and that's also like i mean seth writes about this a lot in his book of the the assisted the assisted mid-range twos just not really existing it narrows the right, field right. for assisted two pointers to shots typically around the basket yeah that's exactly uh, what i had in mind there so 74 of Siakam's 211 assists uh, have been in transition. So about a third of them. How does that compare to others? Well, Siakam is seventh in the NBA. That 74 assists in transition is seventh in the NBA, and that's with having missed the 10 games with the groin. So he's sixth in the NBA if you want to do per game. So 2.2 assists per game in transition. Danny, can you guess who is the leader in transition assists per synergy by a mile? Trey? No, uh, Trey was up there, but Tyrese Halliburton is. The oh, they yeah, are, that's a good. They call. are running like crazy. Wait. I mean, it's and so that's been a, a big part of it. He's great with those hit aheads uh, as well, and uh, Tyrese Halliburton setting up a lot of threes in transition uh, as well. So of Siakam's half court assists. 54% of them go for threes. And I wanted to try to get some context on that. Well, that number is the 10th highest percentage in the NBA for players who have more than 500 offensive possessions plus assists. And so it's kind of a who's who of guys who are scores, but not necessarily amazing passers. So Jason Tatum 
is in there. Lowry Markkinen is actually number one. Zion is up there as well. Now, some of these are for guys who, uh, if you're a bigger guy yourself, then there maybe just aren't going to be as many guys around the rim for you to pass it to. And Toronto kind of falls into that category too, where they're not usually not playing a big, unless it's Coloco, who's around the rim to receive those passes uh, for layups in the half court. But uh, so some of the other guys uh, on that list, Jalen Brown, Shea, Spencer Dinwiddie, Jason Tatum, DeRozan. So a, a lot of guys who, and then the other thing that I kind of noticed about some of these guys too, is many of them are kind of more deliberate players as Siakam is. Julius Randle is in this uh, category as well. Uh, so guys who, so I think you can get those layup assists a lot more when you're really uh, attacking the basket and forcing that big to come over and being able to find someone. Again, there are a lot of components to this. It's not just, oh, Siakam isn't as good of a, of a passer. It's also just that the structure of the Raptors offense, who he's playing with, where everyone is standing, like all of the, and part of the reason that they're standing out of the three-point line is because Siakam, the way he works, he likes to meander, go back and forth, spin, work to a spot in the lane, get to that floater. And so a lot of his passes in the half court come from guys gapping off one pass away, getting ready for that spin move, looking for a chance to jump in from behind if he turns his back. And so he, he does a good job of being under control, recognizing that. And if they slough off of one of the good shooters on the team, he can get it to him immediately. Uh, but I, I didn't see passes like to the weak side that really wowed me. You know, I think a lot of it was just using his scoring gravity and post-up ability. And so, but it's all kind of very deliberate leading to passes that you just didn't see, particularly in the half court. There are only a couple of plays. I probably watched about 40 of his assists that led to shots wide open at the rim. So uh, my ultimate conclusion as I watched Siakam, and again, you know, he's not elite from a personal efficiency standpoint either. You know, he just, it, it's rare that you will see, and he had that 52 point game obviously against New York, but it's rare that you'll see him getting to places where he's getting good shots. Like he'll get to the foul line. He'll kind of work for these floaters, which he makes enough. Like the defense certainly has to respect it, but it's also, he's very rare. Like his typical game is, you know, eight out of 18 and some free throws, right? Like he's not having these like 10 out of 16 games as often necessarily. And so I, despite the fact that he's had this great effect uh, in part due to shooting luck, but also because he adds a skill set nobody else does on this team, I'm not convinced of Pascal Siakam as this really high level of offensive force. You know, he's not forcing as much help as the elite guys. He's not making passes that I would consider elite. Uh, he's gotten better there, obviously. He's making the right passes. You can't just like double them wantonly. Uh, and he's also not scoring incredibly efficiency. So, and then uh, when you see, you kind of think of him, like, what does it look like with him as a number two? You know, I think he can defend better than he has this year for sure. I agree. Um, but you know, I think he's averaging like 0 0.5 blocks per game, which is that. I think that's a career low and he's also playing a, a billion minutes. So it might, it might be per 36. It's not a lot <laughs> regardless. Uh, so, and, and he's shooting it a little bit better, but you know, he's still always, I think going to kind of be like a mid thirties guy from three. So he's a little tough as a number two, because again, he's not like the quickest driver, quickest decision maker. He's on the ball a lot. 
So I, I'm, you know, he's a very valuable player, certainly an all-star level of player. You know, I'm not sure just watching this film and with some of this statistical analysis that he's really a guy who's going to push your offense to a super high level if he's the number one guy. Well, and acknowledging I, their issues around. I, I think that's fair. I also think that it's it, there's the question of you know it's interesting because the analysis that you're doing is melding kind of player quality and value which i think is is interesting because like i agree with you i think i think if og and uh, sorry if pascal siakam is your best offensive player your offense isn't going to be great and that i mean they've been well above average i think they're like 76 percentile when he's on the floor so far this year but as you mentioned there's some some shooting luck in there and but he one argument in favor of it is that I, I agree with that. You want a better offensive player is that A, the Raptors don't have it. And B, he's a better defender than a lot of those kind of below average number ones. Like that's sort of that sort of a position. And sure. it's it's also, you know, just the nature of well, it's it's valuable because if he wasn't there, the Raptors would just be completely dead in the water. And it's always a challenge to evaluate that. And so like, is he as good a player as as Jimmy Butler? No, I don't think that he is. But he has made the Raptors a lot better this year. And that is that you you can appreciate that without saying, and that makes him one of the 10 best players in the league because he's not. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Where are we going next here? I want to go to Orlando. So you want to do their stats? Yeah, they had a heartbreaker of a loss today against Nikola Jokic and the Nuggets up to Jokic gets the ball top of the circle against Franz Wagner. Almost no time left and then just steps back behind the three-point line. I thought Wagner could have done more to pressure him given how little time there was. He's, but he just backed up, shot right over Wagner for the game-winning three as time expired. I mean, the Magic have continued to be very competitive on this West Coast trip despite that loss. Overall for the Magic, now 16 and 27, but a respectable 6 and 7 since we last checked in on them. They had that 8 and 3 stretch. Uh, they're still negative 3.5 net rating, 26th in the NBA, 27th on offense, but up to a robust 19th on defense. And they've put some very good defensive units out there they project for the 13 seed raptor not impressed by this recent surge 28 wins elo likes them for 30 wins but again they for a team that's going to be 13th in the conference negative 3.5 rat rating even as of now is not that bad and they are on the upswing we'll see whether that continues and they continue to try after the deadline so well and and nate that's that's where this this that's where this is going is yeah my here's yeah. my here's my concept 
I think the Orlando Magic have more in common with the teams in terms of team quality and everything else with the teams that are fighting for the play and than they do with the bottom of this conference. Yeah, as they're playing right now, you think? As they're playing right now, as you look at what this team is going to be moving forward, and that presents some really important and fascinating questions for Jeff Weltman, arguably for Jamal Mosley, though I don't think it does for Jamal Mosley. And it's so, I mean, if you want to start with the basics, they're 16 and 28, the Pistons and Hornets. And then if you want to throw in the Spurs and Rockets are, are they're at the highest of those is the Spurs at 13 wins and the Spurs have the league's worst net rating. The Magic are at negative. You, you brought their 26th in net rating. They're a full 3.5 points per hundred possessions clear of those bottom four teams. Like they are, they've been better than those teams. They have a better record than them. So a part of this for me, especially when you consider that the Magic, you could make an argument with Charlotte because LaMelo missed so much time. I think they're materially better than those teams and those teams can sell off and other things. So like basically part of it for me is that those teams are really bad and the Magic aren't. But the other part of it is when you look at some of what you try to get as a more reasonable proxy for when the Magic have been together. And it's important to remember that when you go to some of their player combinations, you're talking about these groups playing against starters. Like this isn't, you know, like, oh, it's, you know, like there those there's there was a Sacramento team years ago or the Spurs benches for years where it's like, yeah, their bench players are better than the average bench. And so they're, they're on offs are, are good. Well, I mean, when Franz Wagner, Paolo Boncaro, and Wendell Carter Jr. play together, about 750 possessions, they have a plus 9.1 net rating. That yeah. group and recall is Carter basically missed a month uh, with that foot issue. Right. And they're 81st percentile on offense, 93rd percentile on defense. And a bunch of that of the sample you brought up that Carter missed a month was before their guards came back. And the, the offense did flow differently. I think in certain weird ways, it flowed better when they didn't have those players just because it gave the ball, put the ball in Franz Wagner and Bancaro's hands more, which there were parts of that that I really liked. And so what the Magic are doing when things have been successful for them is they've been fueled by the young players that I think of as the most important for the long term. And some of the stuff that they that still needs work is their their second units and all of that still need a lot, especially in some ways when they were missing all those guards because it put you put the guys that were still healthy in the starting lineup and then it led to these weird problems and like they've been bouncing between in most circumstances Mo Wagner and Mo Va- and, and Mo Bamba for the backup center position and generally speaking the returns there are that the defense has been pretty bad when both of them have been on the floor but the offense has been better when Bamba's been out there but Jamal Mosley is choosing and I don't think this is like an egregious choice it seems like Bamba's out of the rotation and Wagner's in at least for the time being but again it's not a huge huge difference like one wild stat opponents are shooting 76 percent at the rim when Mo Wagner's playing center that's really high you don't want that to be that high and 71 percent when Bamba's the center which is not great and that presented the idea to me. So I was talking about how good they are when the starters are in. They're also about a plus three net rating when Carter and Bancaro were on, which is a larger sample because it's just two guys instead of three. And I was wondering about like, is maybe one of the things that's going to help their backup defense, John Isaac coming back. And so like when you think about what this rotation, the front court rotation can be when they're even close to full strength, like I've talked about, I don't love Wagner, Mo Wagner or Bamba as the backup center. They could just play Bull Bull, Bancaro, Wendell Carter and Jonathan Isaac. They could get all 48 minutes at both four and the five. And that doesn't even include Franz Wagner, who I still think of as a natural four. So I think you could see their defensive four get even higher. You brought up that they're 19th there. And so 
I don't think that the Orlando Magic are necessarily like a top five team or anything crazy like that in the East. But A, they're not far behind teams like the Wizards, the, the Raptors, and the Bulls in terms of record. But when they've had their good players out there, and all four of those teams that I mentioned, including the Magic, have battled injuries at times this year, like I think they're going to get into that mix. And I also think they're going to get in because there's not really that much for them to sell that's actually helping them win right now because they're obviously not doing anything with their young guys. Yeah, I mean, maybe like a Gary Harris, he hasn't shown enough to necessarily have much value. I might, again, just want to, if you're trying to win next year, just bringing him back at $10 million might end up being the best thing you can do with your money. I think they'll, the ship may have sailed on Bamba at this point, finally, with his non-guarantee for next year. When you think about the possibility of this team tanking, there is Paolo and his Rookie of the Year case, but they may actually be helped by the fact that there's no number two who's really doing anything in the Rookie of the Year now with the demise of Matherin uh, maybe he'll start putting up some stats again with Halliburton now but I think uh that's one where if he obviously has rookie of the year sewn up in the last two or three weeks then maybe they'll be able to rest him but certainly not before that it, you would think and so right and we'll and see. I mean they're gonna want to see Franz Paolo and Wendell Carter play together like I think that's just gonna be something that they're interested in if those guys are feeling it and they the one good thing for the magic kind of along those lines with the potential tank is that they don't play many bad teams the last couple weeks of the season so maybe they can make up some ground there but i think they're going to have some ground to make up um if if that's even going to be the case right i mean the big difference is kind of between the 10 seed and like the 7 seed in the lottery like that the that's really the the ground that you're fighting over in the end um quickly jonathan isaac did play now two games with the Lakeland Magic, and so I think that means he's going to be available to return. Assuming that all went well, we didn't hear anything to the negative uh, right, about and that. And uh, there's no, also, he played 15 minutes a game. Uh, yeah, and there's with, all, there's also Lakeland. a weird quirk in Orlando's schedule where they played that Sunday game uh, against the Nuggets. They don't play again until Friday. They host the New Orleans Pelicans, so maybe that's time to actually have some practices, and maybe Jonathan Isaac I, plays in I those think practices. That, that may well have been why they scheduled it the way they did. So, yeah, Isaac didn't make it three. He was 0 for 6. Uh, had three blocks in 31 minutes uh, over two games and 29 points. Uh, he definitely took uh, took 26 shots in 31 minutes. But, hey, he's trying to get his feet under him a little bit. But they don't really need him uh, to do a, a ton of scoring. I'd be interested to see uh, how he looks uh, when I mean, he I, gets I, back. I will- I will say this. If Orlando, if Jonathan Isaac can can partially or fully solve Orlando's second unit defense, this team could I think I think there's a chance they get the 10 seed. Um oh, and I should correct myself too. The game was actually tied when Jokic hit that okay. three-pointer. Not they weren't down to uh but they still lost. They did. Every day our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then There are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.
talk Knicks here, Danny. Let's do it. And the New York Knickerbockers played. It was it cracked me up because, you know, I, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, a Knicks Sunday day game. Except it was in Detroit. It wasn't the Madison Square Garden one, though. At times it looked like the Pistons had the had played had spent the night in New York the night before. But the Knicks up to 25 and 19, 9 and 6 since the last 1560. They are another one of these. Oh, no, sorry. They're not top 10 in offensive defense. They're, they, they dropped off. They're eighth in net rating, seventh in offense, 12th in defense. Um, but still looking like a very distinct potential playoff team. 45 wins per Raptor, 47 ELO, both of which would be the seven seed. And uh, Raptor, 77% chance of making the playoffs. ELO, 89. And I mean, this was another, on Sunday, another big game from Julius Randle. He had 42 and 15 in 40 minutes of action. I I, pers- I I didn't watch a ton of the late part of this game. I don't know that he needed to play 40 minutes. But it was also a big game from the guy who had a starring role in the first quarter of the game we did for the NBA strategy stream and who's had a wonderful year, Jalen Brunson. Yeah, he uh, played 42 minutes uh, in this one, 27 points plus 20, 9 of 17 from the field, 7 of 8 from the foul line. He actually had 18 of the Knicks, 22 points in that come from ahead loss to the Bucks uh, that we did the strategy stream for on Monday. And and that seventh on offense is just, that's a mind-boggling number given the talent that they had coming in here. And R.J. Barrett is back now from his lacerated finger, although he did not close this game. They actually went with Emmanuel Quickly, Grimes, and Brunson all together, which is, you can get away with it against a Pistons team that was missing Boyan Bogdanovich in, in this game. Back to Brunson, though. We've got enough time here to take a look at how his game has changed as a Dallas Mavericks. So, so many interesting things here. It's still a fair number of his statistics were compiled without Luka Doncic on the floor last year, but they also had much better spacing. These Knicks actually run much more than those Mavericks did. And so Brunson has a higher percentage of his possessions, 13 versus 11% in transition this season. And of course, just in terms of the raw numbers, because his usage is so much higher, just the raw number of transition is much higher as well, because that's 13% of a much larger pie. He's increased as a pick and roll ball. And remember the Knicks for basically every single second play a big and he also has gotten a nice chemistry going with Julius Randle now and there aren't a lot of teams really that seem to want to switch that lately and or have the personnel to and also to put your center on your Mitchell Robinson or Isaiah Hartenstein so Randle his being able to make the three-pointer again this year it just it's so important to what the Knicks offense is doing by the way did we ever give that stat that you looked up during the NBA strategy stream of when we talked about the Knicks we never talked about that game in the pod did we we never did a pod breakdown of it that Julius Randle from what from the very preliminary research I did I never went back and checked it it was the most missed threes the most attempted three-pointers without a make in a single quarter in the history of the NBA it was I think he was 0 for 9 or 0 for 8 uh 0 for 8 in the first quarter against the the Bucks and that, that was a really weird game for him I think he finished 8 out of 28 from the field and 1 of 12 <laughs> 
from three, but he was four or seven in this game. Other games, he's been hitting it. So that was such an interesting chess match. We'll talk some when we get to the Bucks too about another wrinkle the Bucks had in that. But it, the Bucks, a big staple for them has been let a mediocre four or five shooting the three and let them fire away. And Mike Budenholzer and the Bucks apparently considered Julius Randle a mediocre shooter. Julius Randle said, no, fuck that. I've been making this. And so he just kept taking them in that first quarter. And he kind of went to a different strategy after he missed eight. In And it wasn't, he didn't even play the whole quarter either. I think actually Tom Thibodeau even took him out earlier than he normally does to kind of let him recalibrate. And then he came back in and started firing more threes again. Back to Brunson, 43% of his possessions now, whether it's with Randall, whether it's with one of their traditional bigs, is as a pick and roll ball handler, as opposed to 31% last year. Yeah, and, and, and worth noting, Nate, on that, I just thought this was striking with the synergy. That's in the top five percentile. I don't know if that's in the top five percentile point guards or overall NBA players. Like he's running a lot of pick and roll. Yeah, there are not many guys who uh, a larger percentage of their possessions in 43. And points possession is down there, uh, 0.94, still a, a solid number uh, compared to 1.05 last year, which was 93rd percentile. And again, the load on him is much, much greater. There's less spacing. He's not able to play off of Luka Doncic. And then his isolation is about the same no i'm sorry last year was 14 percent. this year it's 11 percent. yeah i was about to say it's, it was so he worked more in isolation against that five out stuff we saw that of course even more in the playoffs so the isolation is down they just don't have as much spacing for him to work that way and he also is going up against the other team's best perimeter defender most of the time as well as a spot up guy he is taking way fewer jump shots than he was a year ago and particularly when he's being set up by his teammates the numbers on that are pretty fascinating Danny in terms of self-created shots compared to last year he really is one of the highest uh, on that in the NBA yeah it kind of reminds me a little bit of the stats I had on Spencer Dinwiddie last week who's of course still playing with Luka Doncic and so last year Jalen Brunson 76% of his shots are self-graded. That's still a reasonably high number. That's up to 84% this year, which is one of the highest numbers in the league. Yeah, Luca, 91% of his shots are self-graded. This is per Seth's stats. Then you got Shade, 88%. Trey at 87%. Chris Paul at 84 And then Jalen at 84 So it's basically a top five number. He is not. And they have other guys who can pass on this team. You'd think maybe they, they should be doing that a little bit more, that he shouldn't be so crazy high in terms of the number of plays that he's initiating but also worth noting that a lot of what Randall is doing now is being set up a little bit more on the move than with some of the point guards that struggled to feed him last year also worth noting that Jalen Brunson Seth has tracked 490 players and he has a estimate of the quality of their shots given how open they are and where they are taken from and just what the expected e-field goal percentage would be if you look at the expected e-field goal percentage Jalen Brunson is 467th out of 490 players in terms of the quality of his shots per assessed estimate but because he makes 3.6 percent more than expected he's still able to be effective Two-point percentage is down, though, 5%. He was uh, about 55% last year. Now he's down to 50 uh, And 
He's not on quite the exact the same heater for mid-range, but also actually finishing at the rim. He's never gotten to the rim that much, taking about 18% of his shots there, but he's down in the low 60s after being high 70s two years ago and 70% last year. The oh. biggest thing that I've... Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll save my thing uh, for after. The, the biggest thing that I've noticed about him on film, in addition to just working more in pick and roll, uh, Charlie also noted on the stats broadcast that so we had the head of stats of the, for the NBA on the strategy stream that Brunson is second in the NBA in rejecting the screen so even though he's working out of pick and roll he'll reject the screen a lot he's he's very shifty in that way he's good at getting to the spots that he wants to get to he also is taking a lot more threes out of pick and roll which he basically never did last year and that's impressive because his three-point percentage is also up to 39 percent now so he's taking more making more and the ones that he's taking are also harder so now he's taking 3.4 self-created three-pointers per 100 possessions out of the 6.5 that he's taking last year he was taking five total threes per 100 possessions but only 1.3 of them were self-created so he's uh, almost tripled his rate of self-created three-point attempts and still he's uh, increased his three-point percentage so i think that's been really good that in the bucks game they're trying to set screens particularly against brooke lopez in that extreme drop coverage they're trying to even set screens for him closer to half court doing that allows guys to get a little bit of separation from the guy behind them he's going pretty fast and then he can pull up and it's harder for that guy to contest on those plays because if you go too fast as the trailing defender if the guy pulls up suddenly you're just going to run right into his back for a a three-shot foul so that's a good way to get guys open for threes off the dribble and they're actually attempting to do that for him well Nate that ties in with the stat that I I had pulled on Jalen Brunson which is that He's already attempted more pull-up threes this season than he did last year. And remember, he played 79 games, played a lot of minutes last year. He took one per game, made 31% on his pull-ups. This year, he's taking two and a half per game, making 40%. Jalen Brunson's actually shooting better so far on pull-ups than he is on catch-and-shoot threes. Both are around 40%, though. And that's a big part of why his percentage has has gone up so much is because he's doing really well in both of those facets of the three-point shooting game. Where are we going next here? Let's go to Miami. That sounds delightful. Yeah, maybe it's raining less there than it is here. <laughs> 24 and 28 and 5 since we last checked in on them. They are above water now, net rating 14th in the NBA, 0.5. They are 22nd on offense still, but up to 4th on defense. And when they've had Butler, they've been uh, respectable offensively. That 4th on defense, a little bit different than it's been compiled in the past. Uh, they've been forcing more turnovers uh, than they had in previous years, but 4th uh, is 4th. And they project for the sixth seed per Raptor. Same for ELO. Both of the projection systems have them at 45 wins, 84% chance of playoffs per Raptor, 80% ELO. What's going on here in their last bit? I mean, so the the important good news is that the Heat are are, are rattling off wins. They've won three straight, four of their last five, six of their last eight, and eight of their last 11. And so being 24 and 20 puts them in significantly better position in the East. They're, the teams that are bunched up, they're getting a little bit ahead of that bunch. So, for example, they're currently... I, I, the way I would probably describe this is they're two and a half games ahead of the nine seed and they're four games ahead of the 10 seed. So like in terms of falling all the way and in terms of falling all the way out of the playoffs, that would actually be four in, or play in. That'd be four and a half games. That That's a pretty large margin. And remember, Jimmy Butler's missed 14 games. Basically, every other member of the Heat has had an absence of some sort. Some of those extended as well. 
So that's pretty good in terms of making the playoffs and potentially they're only a game right now behind the Knicks, potentially making it not through the play in. So that's good news. The bad news is I just talked about all the wins they've racked up in a row. Exactly none of those eight wins in their last 11 games have been against a playoff caliber team with that team's best player on the court. So they won these two games in the set. Part of the reason I hate sets against the Giannis list Bucks. And notably, one of those games was close. I'll get into that in a second. They beat the Suns without Booker. They beat the Clippers without Kawhi, etc. Now, deserve significant credit for beating the teams that are ahead of you. And over the course of a season, a lot of those wins will look significantly mightier. But I think the context is really important. And that ties in with the other part. And this was true. Remember, we talked a little bit about in that gamer about the Heat getting a squeaker win over the Oklahoma City Thunder. That was a game they won by one and they went 40 of 40 from the free throw line. And so Miami is beating the teams that are in front of them, but they're not necessarily doing it in dominant fashion. And so there, there are reasons to be to be troubled. That said, they've been strong when Jimmy Butler's been on the floor and they have these wins. Those wins are locked in and providing separation from teams that they're probably that I would I think the Heat are better than at, at relatively even health anyway. Like it just puts you in a good position, even if I think they got there arguably through let's call them a hollow means in that respect. Yeah, and certainly I think the Heat are capable of beating a lot of these teams. Like if the Heat match up fully healthy against fully healthy Cleveland, I would very seriously consider picking the Heat in that series. Probably we'll see what happens the the rest of the year, obviously. But given the lack of experience for that Cleveland team and the lack of anyone to guard Jimmy Butler for that matter, maybe it would be Evan Mobley. That would be a fun series if it happens. But And I won't think I would pick Miami to beat any of the other top four if fully healthy, but there could be injuries, you know, and those injuries could affect Miami as well. But they've just had a total season from hell under the radar uh, and they seem to have survived it well enough if they can go on a little bit of a run here in the second half uh two other threads that i wanted to to talk about with miami one of them came from uh, cooper moorhead wrote a good piece on partially on miami partially broader on the nba it's on nba.com and he caught something in a game i didn't watch too closely because Giannis didn't play in it that the first of those two games against the uh, Heat Bucks games that happened this week, Milwaukee only took three shots in the restricted area and only made two of those. So that three attempts is the second lowest total in the, uh, I believe that's in the tracking era over the past decade. Yeah, playoffs included. Yeah, um, well, and that's the good news of that is it's the tracking data, not the hand scoring data. Yes. So you're, there's no bias like there is with the Warriors or for sure. so with the Wizards home score. Yeah, and, and Milwaukee, I sorry, I got it wrong. They only made one of those three shots, which is the lowest total made as far back as the tracking data goes. So that's pretty impressive. Yes, it's true. Giannis Antetokounmpo was not on the floor, but Milwaukee still has credible players. They could still get the baskets. So that's that's really good for Miami. And then the other thing. Can, can I actually point to one other thing, too? And this is another hat tip from from Cooper. But I once he pointed out, I did go and watch the film. Bam Adebayo had one of his better games, the best game that he's ever played against Brook Lopez. And in fact, according to the tracking data, the most shots that anyone has ever made with Brook Lopez as the closest defender, I think he hit like nine or 10 shots. And all of them were the shot that they gave him going back to that 21 playoffs when Brook Lopez has kind of been kryptonite for Bam Adebayo. 
just laying back and letting Bam take his mid-ranger or his floater. And so Bam has gotten a lot better at that shot this year. He's taken more of those in isolation. And that's an overall dubious quality offense, but particularly against a Bucks team missing Giannis. Now, that's also probably a big reason why Bam is able to be more effective is it's Lopez with no Giannis. But still, uh, he was able to make some of those shots. He also was able to get into Lopez's body for some hook shots around the rim a little bit. So that was a, an encouraging performance by Adebayo, who, again, he takes incremental steps forward every year we're always waiting for him to take the big leap offensively but it ends up being just a small leap of every year it, it seems like but the, there has been improvement for him as a, a scorer from the mid-range against some of those layback coverages this season the other striking thing and this will probably warrant deeper analysis later on in the season should it stay the same but so last year the miami heat were fifth in effective field goal percentage 55.1 percent this year they're fifth from the bottom they're 26th at 52.4 and i was like okay well what's different about their shot profile and all that and what i i just hadn't it's i i'm guessing it's that i hadn't remembered this rather than i hadn't tracked at the time last year miami was they were so i was like oh man miami this year they have really bad location effective field goal percentage they're 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 i believe they're 25th in that and they're 26th in actual effective and it's like part of that they take plenty of threes but fourth lowest percentage of shots at the basket just 28.8 percent of their shots they take a bunch of floaters floaters generally aren't as high utility worth noting that last year they got to the line a lot more this year they don't quite and so I was like, okay, well, that that see, it's like, okay, they had this huge drop off in effective field goal percentage. They've they have a really low location effective field goal percentage. Maybe that shot distribution changed. No, the Heat were actually below average last year in that too. They were 18th. It's just that they're like what what we've kind of started calling shot making. In their case, it's not as much like the CJ McCollum, Demar Derozan, like making tough mid rangers. It's they're they they just shot the shit out of the ball from three, but. So they went. So last year they had this huge split. They were 18th in location and fifth in actual. And it's just that now those two things have gone together in part because those shooters aren't shooting the lights out anymore. The Chicago Bulls, where are they after a rousing 132-118 win over Golden State this afternoon? Well, their overall stats are a little less rousing. Um, the Bulls are 20 and 24 on the season, though they are nine and seven since the last 1560. Slightly below water and net rating even after that win. Negative 0.3 is 20 in the league 16th in offense 17th in defense and both 538 projection systems have the bulls finishing 10th in the east 39 wins or 40 respectively and raptor is actually much less optimistic than elo about them making the playoffs 27 percent per raptor 39 percent per elo yeah nikola vucevic destroyed the golden state warriors 43 points for him they just did not have any answers for him mostly out of pick and roll where Vucevic actually finished 12 possessions out of pick and roll total 18 of 31 from the field in 39 minutes 5 of 10 from three four offensive rebounds he also had four steals uh plus 12 uh, did it in 39 minutes uh, also had four assists and so the Warriors uh, they had definitely had some communication problems defensively but Vucevic against the, they're doing a lot of ice coverage Draymond Green Kevon Looney guarding him they didn't really want to switch those guys onto the ball handlers a couple times they did early and Vucevic was able to get deep post position that he definitely had the jump hook working also pretty amazing to score 43 points and only go two of two from the foul line I think actually the two of two from the foul line might have been just like an a, a foul that 
took place like fighting for post position or something i kind of even think it was a shooting foul they just uh, were in the bonus so the five of ten from three was impressive like getting up the ten threes and i, I thought he was shooting more on the move really than i had seen him he started to get hot uh, and took him uh, although they're still in the flow of the offense but really where he was able to be effective was pick and pop or uh, kind of on a short roll against an ice coverage which uh, golden state uh, was trying to play a lot of as well so you could catch the ball with some space in front of him a few of those times he would take the short range or, or i shouldn't say short range but the mid-range jumper maybe 17 or 18 feet but more he would put the ball on the floor a couple of times go back to goal almost siakam like and maneuver his way into a hook shot and he just was making a a lot of those uh, and really just uh, totally destroyed the the warriors uh, who had their own big offensive problems uh, in this game they had a 42 point quarter but trailed by double digits throughout most uh, of the fourth uh, as they struggled to score throughout a lot of the evening and, and vucevic held up there as well 12 steals overall for the bulls in this game led by vucevic's four so this was a a career game uh, for him he got it and it was just the variety of ways that he was able to score they ran a couple of cross screens or wedge screens for him to get post-ups uh, the bulls guards did a really good job of finding him on the move finally they tried to switch it in the fourth and he got a deep post position a couple of times so it, it was you know it was the type of shots that he'll take a lot of he was more aggressive taking them as he got hot and as the defense was giving him those shots he's not going to continue to shoot that well uh, every game on those difficult shots but for this one uh, he completely destroyed golden state i think this was also an important game for for vooch and for the bulls more broadly because of the context of where it came on the heels so demar rosen left the boston game early um with this quad issue and then he hasn't played since they the bulls scored 99 against the celtics 97 in a loss to the whiz on wednesday then they got beat at home against the thunder by 14 124 110 and so you're like oh you know could they be coming off they'd had a hot stretch before that and that's what the big part of why chicago was you know nine and seven overall since 15 and 60 if you're like oh it's doing that and then to get a to get a win without DeRozan against the Warriors gives definitely gives you posit- some positive energy. And then they play Detroit on Thursday. Uh, they they should be able to 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 do well in that game. That's I think in, I think that's the game in Paris because um, the timing is a little bit bizarre on that. And then, so they also have a little bit of time now between that. French fans just foaming at the mouth to see Killian Hayes in that game. Yeah, and and give Detroit some in-person scouting of a certain a certain French player <laughs> that they might be potentially getting at. Um, which is funny because when I saw James, I had forgotten that they were doing that game there, and I'm like, oh, that's smart. James Edwards was able to get he was able to get the athletic to pay for him to go to Paris to watch Wembenyama. I totally forgot that the Pistons were playing in a game there, but that's pretty great. Um, and then back to the Bulls. So like I brought up that they'd had these struggles without without Rosen, but I don't want that to diminish from Zach Levine looking more like Zach Levine over the last few weeks more broadly. Yeah, he's now shooting much better at the rim. If you look at the full season numbers, scoring 56% of his contested finishes. So that's actually a little bit above average league-wide. And considering the difficulty of some of the finishes that he gets, uh, that's a, a respectable number. He'll probably get even better there. Out of pick and roll, he's going to the basket about a third of the time. But just if you watch some of his finishes, like he had this beautiful quick punch dunk 
in transition on Anthony Lamb. And overall for the game, the Bulls took 36 shots at the rim compared to 20 for Golden State. And Levine, he just hasn't had as many of these blown tire finishes over the last couple of weeks. And he's able to accelerate to the rim and then slow down, kind of let the defense fly by. If he needs to lower his shoulder to create space a little bit, he's able to do that and to get up for a few more dunks as well. So he's also been better shooting the three. If you look at his self-created threes, only shooting 32% on those, those are still your defense breaking off the dribble threes that you'd like to see him shoot a better percentage on. But on team-created threes, 46%. And it'd be nice if they could get him open off the ball a little bit more or if that were a a big part of a game, particularly if he was going to complement DeRozan a little bit more. And then his two-point jumpers haven't been falling as much either. That's only at 39%. Again, if he's going to be a really devastating pick-and-roll score, that's a a number that you really want to get up into like the mid 40s but for chicago they're just a weird team you know because (laughs) they have these individual players like vooch did it tonight like he's not that consistent the nature of his game it's just hard to be consistent shooting the shots that he shoots without ever getting to the foul line as a backstop or having an isolation game that can get you into really good shots even when he posts up against smaller players you know a lot of it's this quick flip hook shot that's not going to go in all the time uh but no he's a guy who can kill you on a given night and obviously DeRozan he to me is one of the guys that if you don't have the right defender for him more maybe than just about anyone in the league he can kill you and obviously Levine can go off at a given time but they also just have a lot of these weaknesses like Vucevic protecting the rim and backup center has been a sore spot for them as well and then the four position they don't really have anyone who who can shoot a high volume from three uh, out of there and so they're they can't themselves be consistent enough because they have these holes or there are certain matchups they have that can be exploited but there are also certain times when they have high level of players even against good teams who can really go off and cause problems for them it's just they can't be consistent enough because they're they just have too many overall weaknesses as a team and that's how they end up 20 and 24 with relatively decent health this year outside Alonzo right again three their three main guys you know I know DeRozan's missed three in a row here but their three main guys are supposed to be Vucevic uh, and DeRozan and Levine and those guys have, haven't missed too many games Levine is yeah. working his way back but still yeah I think that's I think that's a fair way of thinking about it um are we good on the Bulls we are and we're hopefully going to be feeling better than the Indiana Pacers are right now in the game against the Knicks Tyrese Halliburton goes down he gets knocked to the ground zone actually landed on him he's now dealing with an elbow issue and a knee issue it sounds like it's going to be a relatively short-term absence you will also actually I'm not sure how much of this is intentional maybe I'm or maybe I'm just seeing it this way but it seems like a lot of times when guys are out right before the all-star break that you almost they'll downplay the injuries or even make it sound like they'll be back before the break just so that it won't psychologically cause people to not vote for them <laughs> so mm. I don't think Hal Burton is in danger there I think I we're I'm doing my all-star analysis now because John and I are going to record it later this week but I'm pretty sure I'm gonna have uh, Tyrese on my team for the 23 and 21 Pacers eight and six since we last checked in on them although they have struggled in the absence of Hal Burton they are one of the luckier teams in the NBA comparing their net rating to their record having won in fact they're the second luckiest team by that metric having won 3.1 more games than expected to get to 
that 23 and 21 record. They are 17th on offense and 24th on defense, projecting for 40 wins and the nine seed via both projection systems. And again, worth noting here, the 12 seed Wizards are projected for 37 wins right now. So only three games separating the nine from the 12 seed in terms of the projection systems. Yeah, and and if you want, you could add one more game, and that's from the from the eight to the twelve. Who's we'll, but we'll talk about the Hawks later on. So we've seen obviously Miles Turner playing his natural center position. His backup is Isaiah Jackson, who uh, has flashed uh, quite a bit this season, but also uh, has some interesting aspects to this game that you want to get into yeah and i was inspired to cover isaiah jackson in some ways it's easier and harder when a player has when a team has important players out because you get to see more of some of those some of those nah dimmer lights sounds a little bit harsh but like isaiah jackson usually doesn't get as much of a chance to shine but miles turner's been dealing with back spasms halliburton has been out so I, I was watching that game against the hawks that they played on i think that was thursday and Jackson had three three blocks in like 30 seconds. He had two on one possession and then one on the next possession. Ended up with seven in the game. Actually got kind of close to a points, rebounds, and blocks, triple-double, 10, 10, and 7 in 28 minutes of action. And so I was like, oh, let's see, let's see how Isaiah Jackson's doing. He's had a couple more starts in this stretch when Miles Turner's been out. And overall in the season, Isaiah Jackson's playing 16 minutes per game, basically the same as in his sophomore season, which is this year, as his rookie season. And averaging seven points, four rebounds, a block and a half a game. And if a block and a half a game doesn't sound like a lot, remember he's playing 16 minutes per game. And yes, that's going to come up very soon. Um, Back when you and I saw Isaiah Jackson in Summer League, we did not watch film on him. I wondered, I think you did too, whether he would eventually be able to extend out to three. And still young, but that has not happened yet. Jackson has taken just seven three-pointers in about 550 minutes so far this year. So that's a pretty low attempt rate. And for a player then who's doing a lot of his work inside the arc, 59% true shooting on 18 usage is actually below average efficiency for a center. Um, it's a it's really interesting kind of like wrap your mind around that. But like, I mean, not only with the league efficiency going up, but centers being more efficient than K- KP tweeted about this. The league average true shooting for a center now is 62 percent, which is which is just incredible. And it's good for Isaiah Jackson that he's converting 71 percent of his shots in the restricted area. That's, you know, 71. You'd love for it to be a little higher. Good with 71. And that's 51 percent of his attempts. Or sorry, 59 percent of his attempts. You're like, oh, well, that's 71 percent, 59 percent of his attempts. That's good. Except that when you never take threes, that means 40 percent of Isaiah Jackson's shots are twos and not around the basket. And he's not making those super well. And that's why he's at 59 percent true shooting i at first one of my operating theories had been that it's because jackson doesn't spend as much time with tyrese halliburton but i I attribute that as part though far from the whole reason why miles turner is having the best offensive season of his career and it turns out that the splits don't necessarily bear that out his efficiency stays jackson's efficiency stays roughly the same when he plays with without Halliburton. But the thing that is really catching and it's what kind of inspired this and then I looked at the numbers and it was even far more striking is that opponents are only shooting 61% at the rim in Isaiah Jackson's minutes. That's 89th percentile. And we're dealing still in pretty small sample size theater here because and it's worth considering that was 65.7% last year. So that's a pretty big drop off. And so you wonder how much of that's real, how much of that's not. 
And going back even to the nylon calculus days, one of my things that I loved the most about Seth's, Seth's stats was the the tracking of rim protection, especially because his process on that is, is so good. And it's, I, I would argue it's, it's improved with time and, of course, significantly better tracking technology now. And Isaiah Jackson, he's actually dropped down a little bit. He's I think he's like roughly 30th now. He was – oh, no, no, actually, sorry. This, this, it's sorted differently. He's 14th in Seth's rim protection win stat. And per 36 minutes, Isaiah Jackson is blocking 4.1 shots per per 36. That is fourth in the NBA behind Claxton, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Walker Kessler. So that's really impressive. And we don't know whether that's going to continue blocking, but but the combination of blocking shots and a low overall success at the rim, to me, that's a preliminary indicator that it's not just the old like jumping for every shot, blocking some of them, and then the, you're giving up a bunch of uh, open layups other than that. There is, though, uh, a concern because even though Indiana has done a a much better job offensive rebounding when Isaiah Jackson is on the floor, they have been abysmal defensive rebounding. They're just fourth percentile of all like that. That's where the Jackson lineups fig- figure in defensive rebounding. So some of that is personnel. You know, the Pacers don't have they they you know, they can dabble with those shape set and a few other guys at the four. But you still want that number to be a lot higher. And that, I guess, both the other way in terms of the like chasing blocks and everything else. Yeah, Jackson is a guy to me who reminds me a lot of Nick Claxton and some of the same questions that we had about him. I, I don't know that Jackson has shown as much as Claxton, but he hasn't been a, on the same level of team either. And Jackson, unlike Claxton, has had more of these flashes of outside game where he'll put guys in the mix and pull up from the foul line in isolation. He hasn't been able to be efficient with that. And Claxton, I think, has always had a better aptitude for finishing, although Jackson, I mean, some of these dunks that he gets are ridiculous. Like he had this left-handed alley-oop the other day that was like well above the top of the square. And you, know, you mentioned how his efficiency is not great. And for a guy with his athleticism to be 1.03 points per possession in pick and roll. And sometimes you see those guys with low pick and roll roll man efficiencies. And you're like, oh, well, it's probably because they're just pick and popping a lot and taking a lot of jumpers. But that's not even necessarily the case. A lot of these are on rolls to the basket. And you mentioned that maybe more than optimal of those turn into shots uh, away from the rim. But going back to the analogy with Claxton, all right, he's capable of switching. He's got some rim production ability like you talked about. Not an amazing defensive rebounder or a box-out guy. Can he hold up against bigger centers? Maybe not, especially with the defensive rebounding issues. But there's something there. And the problem for Jackson as well, even though he's been able to be effective as a rim protector, is you wish you had a little bit more size and switchability around him, which if the Pacers are going to have Tyrese Halliburton and Ben Matherin and they don't have anyone even who's close to a normal size three on this roster that's probably not going to be their destiny so his mobility is going to be kind of more limited to late clock situations etc they don't really play an aggressive pick and roll coverage that often necessarily either but he can block shots when guys get to him so it's intriguing enough you just hope that he he's gonna have to find a lane at some point and make fewer mistakes on both ends either become ultra efficient as a finisher have this game off the dribble actually translate into something that's usable and just get a little bit tougher and stronger around the basket defensively while we're on the pacers front i've seen some quick signs from aaron neesmith like i 
If he, yeah. Then he's you know, capable he, defensive player. He started player. a bunch of, for them at the three lately. Yeah, he started for them at the three, making making more of his three-pointers now. I think he's at like 34% on the year. And so it's, I would say for Neesmith, I would describe it more as the the outlines of a potential solution at, at, at the forward spot. But encouraging yeah, all the still, same. He's still guard size is the problem. Like he's tough. He's got some athleticism. So he's was not reputed to be a good defender coming out of college, but he kind of had to become that because he struggled so badly as a shooter in Boston that he, he it's interesting how guys will make up for that when they're struggling offensively. But yeah, he, he's got some juice. You know, he has, has some big dunks as well. He had this huge cram a, a righty along the baseline. I forget who was on like last week, but he got somebody really badly. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, the, the Pacers, this, they've won a few too many games. You would think to roll out the tank just out of curiosity. What is their net rating this year with Tyrese Halliburton off the floor? Do you want to take a guess? Well, oh, oh, actually, you you could take a guess while I'm looking up. I forgot to mention this when we were in the Knicks section. I looked it up, and and my preliminary research in game was correct. Julius Randle most three point attempts without a make in a single quarter in NBA history. Amazing! I can't believe we got to witness that history. Really, really warmed my heart. I, I, I can't. That I out. can't believe. We, I can't believe we knew it was like I was. I happened to be able to pull that because Charlie brought it up. I happened to be able to. No, pull I brought that. it up. You brought actually. it up during. Yeah, a, I was, during I was a like, break. this has got to be close to the most number of threes ever in a quarter without a without to make uh indiana offensive rating with tyrese halliburton on the bench this is per cleaning the glass 108.6 that is 12th percentile in the league they they are sixth percentile in effective field goal percentage and turning it over on 16.2 percent of their possessions yeah and one of the things that tj mcconnell is a solid backup point guard in the regular season but once he gets higher on the scouting report and is going against starters his offensive limitations really become more of an issue let's get to i teased at the beginning so we got to at least finish this one we're almost two hours in right now but i wanted to check in on Jaden ivy for the 12 and 35 detroit pistons danny yeah you brought up the record the pistons are four and 12 since the last 15 and 60 28th in net rating negative 7.7 per 100 possessions that just uh, just because just to put it in the full context so in terms of net rating those bottom four teams charlotte negative seven detroit negative 7.7 houston negative 8.5 san antonio negative 9.3 so that's the kind of where we're, we're talking right now Pistons are 24th in offense, 29th in defense. They are projected to finish dead last in the East, 23 wins per both projection models. And per Raptor, they would finish with the second worst record in the NBA, still a a comfortable four games ahead behind of the Houston Rockets. Um, And of course, they're not going to make the playoffs. So I wanted to check in now uh, on Jaden Ivey with a, a half season in the books Wait, the Pistons are 12 and 35. They've played 47 games already. It's a lot of games. They're like way ahead of a bunch of these other teams. Anyway, it's felt like like it's felt like 65. So so some things to like uh, about kind of where I thought he would be at this point in time as an enigma. Obviously, the flashes are very exciting for him. I, I still maintain that the athleticism is not just so overwhelming as i watch him certainly very fast in a straight line i don't find his first step to be like as blinding it kind of once he gets going in the open court two or three steps i think his top end is really really fast but maybe in a short area still very quick but not 
as ridiculous as you might want for a guy with this the profile that he was reputed to have there are some things that he has definitely improved i would say just simply being able to shoot a jump shot going to his right with his form where he and actually like rise up and stop on a dime like he's actually added that to his game saw a couple of those i think one of them even went in uh there have been moments with his handle where it's looked awesome like there's this one play against the mavs where he got trapped uh, uh, on an angle right pick and roll the guy steps out he immediately goes trying to trap him against the sideline he immediately goes right to left behind his back eludes that guy gets downhill hard to his left blows by moxie klepa and has a beautiful extension left-handed finish it was just as soon as the guy stepped out boom right behind the back and he was gone incredibly impressive like those types of flashes uh, particularly with the handle are exciting and he's found ways to get penetration and leverage his quickness obviously the foundation of his game as we saw as a prospect was is that hesitation right hand dribble explode hard going to his right but he's added some counters to that a between the legs and then explode left trey young has probably the best one of those in the league right now but that's those sorts of moves can be very effective for ivy he's fast enough that he doesn't need these 35 second dribbling exhibitions he's got that that hesitation hard going right that you always have to really respect and then it, he can play off of that as a counter it's also added just the, the ability to do that hesitation and, and go hard left as well i'd like to see him develop particularly in transition a little bit more of an inside out dribble oh that'd as well be good at him. speed sorry that'd be good for him yeah it could it yeah could, it'd be and, nice. and and then he's also got that john morant that cross jab where it's almost like a, a crossover and then explode after the crossover as opposed to while you're doing the crossover you kind of crossover in a way that kind of baits the defender to lean forward it's kind of more of like a languid crossover for one side or the other and then explode uh, with the left hand if you look at his drive direction this is something that synergy will look at with isolation spot ups uh, anytime even turn and face out of the post anytime a guy is driving to the basket one-on-one he actually is pretty even drives right 50.5 percent of the time and drives left 47.4 percent of the time and there's also a drive straight category where i guess there's just nobody in front of him at all Uh, however those have gone those have gone really well for him three points per possession on two two possessions right yeah so uh, i guess he must have just gotten and ones uh, on both of those so that's encouraging because he definitely developing a left hand i think he's done well to understand how guys are are playing him the finishing though overall it is definitely a work in progress and part of that is because he's always going a million miles an hour when he gets to the room and so he'll be a little bit out of control the ball he'll try to get extension but because he's going so fast the ball will kind of slip out of his hands you know he's not like palming the ball and extending it uh it, he'll he's just going so fast that it's hard to have a ton of touch on these finishes the other thing that will happen is a lot of times he's going so fast if the big actually gets there he's not really in a position to bail out of it he'll get stuck going under the rim sometimes that'll lead to a wild left-handed reverse layup other times he'll get stuck under the basket and be trying to use his hang time to extend his arm and throw a sweeping pass to a shooter his passing accuracy overall was not particularly good a lot of times because some of these passes are under duress and he's passing mostly as a last resort where he's drawing a reaction from the defense a lot of times but he's not really looking to make the pass until he's kind of forced to in a lot of these circumstances 
And a lot of times where he's been effective is when the big and the drop coverage is respecting his game near the foul line or from floater zone too much. And then he can blow by that guy and get to the corner of the backboard, beat him there and get the layup. So if you're a big guarding him, laying way back at the rim works pretty well. And then force him into that floater game, that pull up mid range game, which is not really there overall in pick and roll, like many such rookies, 0.75 points per possession and operates out of the pick and roll 33% of his possessions. So not very great there. Even in transition, hasn't been particularly efficient. Uh, 0.98 points per possession for transition. That's not very good. Hasn't been efficient in spot up. Isolation hasn't really been efficient there either. That's 28th percentile. So overall, he's uh, well below average in true shooting. What are his top line numbers uh, for the season, Danny? He's playing 30 minutes a game, averaging 15 points, 4.2 assists, 4.1 rebounds. Um, And then if you want kind of the... Our, our basic, the advanced ones, 52% true shooting on 24.4 usage. Actually, a decent steal rate, 1.5%, and then not a, not a super high block rate. And then I like to do these splits. So there's some basic ones that I do for player efficiencies. Um, 33% on five threes per 36 45% on 10 twos per 36, and then 5.6 free throw attempts per 36. That 5.6 free throws is actually somewhat encouraging. Yeah, obviously that two-point percentage it needs to come up Yes, quite a bit. And yeah, we haven't seen a ton of advanced reads out of pick and roll. Like he's making the pass to the guy who's like obviously open. If someone cuts across his face, he can find him. I think his best work as a passer comes in transition, uh, but not seeing really many advanced reads out of the pick and roll. It is worth noting, however, that as you watch the film, it seems like all of these pick and rolls in the half court are against a very stagnant defense. You're not really seeing it as the result of side to side movement where you can catch it with an advantage on the move. He's not helped. It's hard to really run much hand handoff game with him because you can just go under on that handoff and the defense is totally content with him on on that that. on that front Jaden ivy so far 28.6 percent on pull-up threes yeah so that's that hasn't been great you know obviously he's gonna have to be a a better shooter in the end when he passes he, he loves to do the look away as he's passing like he does he tries to be really flashy but most of it isn't really actually useful every once in a while he do so, something creative with the handle that actually gets him open but a lot of it is just kind of as my dad would say hot dogging uh, that's what he would re- refer to to guys who just you know do a look away just to make it look cool rather than for like an actual purpose that's a, a lot of his moves are like that but whatever it's fine you can have some fun out there and my, my dad, by the way, he's all about throwing behind the back passes when you actually needed to, but he, he would always caution me that like, you know, just save it for when you actually need it. Functional deception. Yes, yes, exactly. So my biggest comparison for Ivy, obviously there was John Morant in the draft process, just didn't have that type of athleticism, that type of bounce, that type of handle, just the that, overall skill I mean, level of Morant. that type of passing feel. Right, right. Yeah, it just doesn't have the same feel for offensive basketball. And he's, But the guy he actually really reminds me of right now is maybe a little bit more athletic and bigger Dennis Schroeder, mm. who, because he still kind of has this straight line game. The foundation of it is just straight line, beat you to the corner of the backboard. Not an amazing passer, not an amazing shooter. Though Schroeder has had his moments, and he's had seasons 
where he shot you know, 45% or high 40s for mid-range. I'm not sure that Ivy will get there. They both kind of shoot set shots as well. They've had iffy three-point shooting seasons as well. Have some defensive tools. Shooter's gotten better as a defender as time has gone on. Hopefully that can be a big part of Ivy's game. But I'm still trying to find what the bread and butter is going to be for him in the half court and what has not been a good Detroit ecosystem, obviously. But he's going to have to either get way better as a shooter or way better as a defender, I would say, if he wants to be more than just kind of a scoring bench kind of guard. And I'm not not saying he can't get there. Obviously, he's got to get better as a finisher, too. His contested finishing has not been very good. But that's very typical for guys of this age. So I still... I feel about the same as I did about Ivy in the draft process. You know, some other guys who I had above him haven't really been that great. I don't say I wouldn't say that he's necessarily past them in, in my eyes. Uh, so there have been some flashes, but also not really. I haven't seen anything that I think is consistently going to be a foundation for him yet. How are you feeling about him in contrast to how you did in the draft process? Because I, I think you and I were both not as high on him as a, a lot of others were. We, we weren't. And I'm actually looking at my my basic profile, like my, my write-ups at the time. And I one of the things that I was looking to find in there was, I, and it was a note that I had, and it said he had few wow reads as a passer, either succeeding or failing. And I, I think about the failing wow reads as somebody like Trey Young. Like Trey, and, oh, at the Oklahoma film, you had a bunch of them like, oh shit, he was going for this. And, and it, it didn't work, but you could tell it. And so with Ivy... That's actually the I brought up passing feel as one of the differences between Ivy and Morant as a prospect is I'm less confident and I wasn't that confident in him being an on ball offensive force. And there are other ways to do it than being, you know, kind of growing in the ways that Tyrese Halliburton has. Like there are a lot of different ways. But with Ivy, in order for him to be that kind of player, I think A, I would have wanted to see more now and B, even with that, it takes a lot of growth. And we've seen plenty of guys develop that by the time they're, you know, 24, 25, but you still have to actually do it. And if that's a difficult tightrope to walk, then as you mentioned, in order for Ivy to be a starting caliber player, he's going to need to be a, a, a reliable catch and shoot guy. He can do that. He's not quite there yet. And better defender is the, by the way, defensive BPM is just hating what Jay Ivey's doing out there so far. I would need to watch more film to have a strong feel on that personally. So it's, it's sort of running into a problem. I'm not comparing them as players to the downside. I failed to fully appreciate back with Dante Exum, where it's just like the non ball dominant guard is you have to do a lot of things, right? And even if you do those things, right, you're not as valuable a player to your team. And so the other thing to consider with Ivy, I'm not, you know, I'm not using this to, to, to crush him just yet, but he's also an older age 20 season. So he'll turn 21 in February, but it's just, it's after the basketball reference cutoff. So it's, this is his age 20 season. So he is older than some of these other guys too. I don't think it's so much older that you're worried about like him just not getting better, but the idea that it's like, he's just, oh, he's this like 18, 19 year old kid. Eh, not quite. All right, well, that's going to do it. We've got two hours of recording time in the books here, but still have the Charlotte Hornets, the Cavs, the Hawks, the Bucks, and the Sixers, who uh, had a last-second win tonight against the Lakers, to go. We'll probably get to the rest of that on Tuesday because uh, MLK Day, we're going to do a, a gamer. Although it's not quite the same level of marquee games that you normally see on MLK Day. Maybe they're dodging football, as they always are. But 
nonetheless, uh, we will take advantage of the holiday and the games being a little more spaced out and get you a gamer tomorrow. And then uh, John and I are doing our all-star picks this week as well. So never a better time to be a subscriber. We're going to get into our look ahead for all 30 teams at the trade deadline over the next couple of weeks. And of course, we're getting close only a couple of weeks away now from the mock trade deadline. Lots of fun coming up here on Dunked on Prime. We'll talk to you all soon. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.